Hello, guys. This is Xenglicious Podcast. I'm Xenia, its host, and here we're talking about modern problems in delicious English. Subscribe and share our podcast on your social media to help us promote it. If you want more episodes. Hello, guys, and welcome to our podcast on burnout. We're going to be talking about、uh, what it is, maybe the history, and some of the effects that you may have been going through, or some of the things that we see in our culture. Thank you, Josh, for presenting our episode. And that's right. Today we are talking about burnout as a cultural phenomenon of modern society. As far as I see, I feel kind of ambivalent attitude towards burnout because, on the one hand, there is a culture of productivity, of perfectionism, and people really take pride. In pushing themselves beyond this exhaustion point, because in that they feel accomplished, they feel being in demand and fulfilling the ideal of constant work. And actually, society never gives them credit for that. Never tells them when enough is enough, and they feel the pressure that they need to strain relentlessly and unremittingly because the bar is already set astronomically high. And on the other hand, burnout is not even recognized as a medicalized syndrome, and it's just been recently when the researchers agreed on the three conditions defining burnout: that is, exhaustion. How emotionally drained I am, depersonalization or cynicism. I do not really care what happens to people whom I'm supposed to care about as part of my duties, and feeling personal ineffectiveness or feeling useless. And it's only in a couple of countries where now they recognize that burnout exists, and it's a real mental condition that needs to be treated correspondingly. So, could you tell us, please, what do you think in your experience? What do you think about burnout in the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, I mean, I think ambivalent. Is a good word, right? Like we all recognize that it's a phrase that's used, but there's still a lot of negative connotations that go along with it. Like if I say I'm burned out, there's a lot of、uh, you know people they're gonna understand what I'm saying, but there's also a lot of negative background that's gonna be associated with that, such as like laziness or not willing to grind, not willing to you know. It's used, you know, people think it's used more as a cop out, opposed to like a, le- a legitimate thing that's happening in the workforce. Well, another interesting point that I'd like to discuss today is the historic perspective on the burnout, because currently it seems to us that it's the problem of the millennials. Even some authors who are researching the topic they write that burnout is the millennials' base temperature, that this is kind of our natural condition. But I found out that actually throughout history, people, especially who were engaged in intellectual work, they were prone to burnout. They were also suffering from these problems like melancholy, which was. Associated with artistic inclinations and brain work, and neurasthenia in 18th-19th century, when it was considered to be the disease of the avant-garde, of the elite who found they couldn't fulfill their religious duties or secular ambitions. Do you have an idea why is it exactly the intellectuals who are suffering from that throughout history? Why are they the ones who take the burden of this mental suffering on themselves? There's two parts to that answer. I think first off, an intellectual is somebody that can think for themselves, really. And people who think for themselves, they they further that and say, to what end am I doing something? And so, if you're at a job and you're, you know. 
you rise above the I'm gonna do this I'm gonna get my paycheck I'm gonna I'm gonna go home I'm gonna repeat all of this if you if you think beyond that part then yeah of course you know you're if you don't see a point if you don't see um, like a purpose behind it there is no inner drive there is no reason to to keep going and keep doing what you're doing I think it like coming back to the millennials part like if you think about the last 25 30 years especially in the US like a lot of us just went through you know we we watched friends and parents and stuff lose houses you know we watched the economy tank we watched people lose their jobs and the retirement that they'd saved years up for you know i watched vice presidents of oil companies just you know forced into retirement of their bo- uh, because of the boards and you know a lot of us kind of look at her we want to know there's a there's a reason to what we're doing because it's not just money anymore that that is good enough we've learned we can deal with less and so we want to have this inner drive and motivation because if we don't have that then if what we're doing isn't fulfilling on multiple levels then yeah you're gonna have this thoughts of um what's the point you know to what end am i doing this for and that will circle around and bring the the feelings, the beginnings of, of the burned out. Yeah, I totally see your idea. I'd also like to highlight, as I've gathered from my research, that it's not enough to be an intellectual to get burned out. You also need to be a committed individual to be emotionally involved in your job. And then you are becoming prone to burnout and all its negative effects. There is a psychologist, Christina Maslich, who in 1982 wrote the book Burnout, Cost of Caring, where she finds out that those who burn out tend to be idealistic. And the book focuses on workers in human service professions, counselors, social workers, police officers, teachers, etc. And it highlights that burnout is caused by institutions. When the workplace doesn't recognize the human side of work, this is when the risk of burnout grows. And so people basically turn into the working dead in those conditions. I think at this point, I would also like to bring up the book that I've been reading lately. And this is a burnout case by Graham Greene, in which the main character, as he puts it, comes to the end of his vocation because he sees no further sons in all of the activities. And he comes to some kind of a rural place in Africa to work in a leprosary surrounded by lepers. He has to give him some kind of menial job like to wash their bad sheets and just to be away from civilization, to escape his whole business of the life that he had previously. And the idea is that he's not a regular worker whom we can call just a replaceable cog in the machinery of the economy, but he's the one who is committed and he's identified by his vocation, by what he's doing. And this is kind of an ideal that we're currently having, that one needs to be really committed to his vocation. We are not looking anymore for jobs, you know, for a company we can go to five days per week until the rest of our life. But what we seek is more about the place of the sphere of activities in which we can put in our soul, our talents, our perspectives, so that it could be- both benefit us and the people with whom we're working, the society whom we're serving. Yeah, I think the, the, the point of, of tying yourself to the job and that no longer being a trend, I, I mean, that kind of ropes back to... to the, the point that I was making about, you know, in 2008, people had devoted their lives to companies and then all of a sudden they had their their houses, their retirement, everything was taken. And yet they were left with with barely anything. And so what is the point of, of me devoting my life and, and all of my energy to 
the workplace if there's a chance of that happening. What I would rather do is, is devote that to something that's meaningful to me. I would rather devote that to something that, that drives me because when there's no money, at least there's, or you know, very little money, there's something else. There's an intrinsic motivation that lights a fire that keeps me wanting to do what I'm doing. I mean, you asked me about the burnout culture, you know, and it, is it recognized in, you know, in the U.S. and stuff? And it definitely is recognized, and I think it's becoming more cared about as you're starting to see the effects of stress, and you're starting, well, I mean, we've been seeing the effects of it, but now that, you know, it's not just looked at it like a lazy person's cop-out, you know, people are taking it much more serious. Workplaces are taking it much more serious. How is it in Russia? Are, are people, you know, is this, a, is this a popular topic that businesses actually care about? Or Well, I'd say that in Russia, businesses do not care about anything as long as the worker is at their working place and performing their duties. You know, nobody cares what is the condition they're in. I'm not really sure that, you know, people even feel entitled to asking any kind of extra treatment, possibly sick leave, if they're experiencing any kind of mental condition or mental struggle, because even with more established things like depression or other clinical syndromes, it's really hard to take a break from work, especially if you are in a demanding or managing position where you can't be easily replaced. And the attitude, I think, in the most workplaces is like that. What? You want a sick leave? Okay, probably can work remotely. No? Then what's what's your condition? Why is your condition so hard that you cannot even turn on your laptop and work from bed? So... People are afraid to even talk that they have this or that mental problem because they are afraid of the stigma which is attached to almost any mental disease in Russia. Like from my experience, if you just simply talk to the older generation saying that I'm kind of feeling down or probably I'm having a depressive episode or something, they're gonna tell you like, well, probably need to be put into the psychiatric clinic, you know. And these are not the most hospitable places in Russia because usually this is something you've been threatened with all your life. When I was a child, I remember that from the age, you know, like 11 or 12, we would joke about that and children's jokes, they're usually very cruel. You are joking that somebody's insane. And I remember that pretty vividly how my grandmother, who actually had this experience of being in, as they call it, borderline section of psychiatric hospital, she would sometimes ask, uh, you know, referring to my or my brother's behavior, she didn't say as normal, as, have you escaped from Blihanovka? And Blihanovka was the casual name of the local hospital for mentally ill. So my generation has been damaged badly in that respect, but we're working on that. And I, I'm really proud of how many open-minded people I see surrounding me. I truly admire their efforts to try to raise social awareness on that, because essentially this is what we need to do to normalize depression, to normalize burnout, to normalize any mental condition a person is struggling uh, to detach that stigma because it's already hard for them and if there is extra pressure from the society it basically becomes unbearable so i hope that it is going to be better with every generation now on and we still need to do a lot to prove that depression is real and the next stage 
would be like to prove to people that burnout is real. I think in Russia we still have a long way to go in that direction. And our last question here, you know, I would like to discuss with you is how hyperconnectivity contributes to burnout. Because in the middle of the previous century, the main character of Graham Greene's novel ran away to Africa to hide there where nobody knows him. Um, precisely to be disconnected from civilization. But in our time, it's really hard to escape both physically and metaphorically, because first, advocates of remote work help to instill the idea that you can work essentially from anywhere, any time zone. You can chill somewhere at the beach on Bali and continue coding or recording lessons for your online school. But this is kind of a mixed blessing. Yes, you can combine remote work with your personal plans, as traveling, for example, but in that, ca- in that case, the line between work and personal time has never been so blurred. Because, on the other hand, all the burgeoning technologies never let you have your personal time. You're always connected, for example, in the after hours you finish work, come home, but you continue getting messages, mails from work, and there is nowhere to hide. How can you combat that hyperconnectivity to preserve your mental health? What do you think? I mean, it definitely contributes, right? Like, if you can't turn it off, if you can't escape. You know, most people, they used to be able to go home. We didn't carry around devices that you could immediately reach us on for work-related purposes. But not being able to turn it off, I mean, the opposite of that, it means we keep going. You only have so much energy in a day. And if all of that energy is devoted to to work, you know, or this this anxiety that comes with the fact that you have to respond to to the work or to the to the interaction that leaves very little energy for you to deal with with your own stuff. You end up in a kind of errand paralysis where you don't want to do stuff for yourself. You don't have it's it was not you don't want to you, you you don't have the energy for it. You know, that's why all of these phones and devices now that they all have work mode and life mode and zen mode and all of that stuff because this is you know that they know that that we can't turn it off and so these companies are are giving you know ways that to help mitigate the effect yeah i i see your point and i'm totally with you there i guess one really needs to establish rigid boundaries between personal and work time and stick to them for the sake of one's own sanity I'm still struggling to do that, but I'm working in that direction. Guys, thank you for listening to our first pilot episode of the podcast. We'll try to do our best in the next episode, so we hope that we'll be back soon. Meanwhile, let us know what you think on the problem and stay tuned!